0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Throughout history, young people have been at the center of activism. The civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter, the labor movement, and now, gun violence. In today's show, we'll hear from young activists who are working to improve society by tackling issues like racism, equity, and transgender rights. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Summit on Inequality and Opportunity. It was held in Washington, D.C. in early March. Amanda Ripley is an author and journalist who writes for The Atlantic. She says her best material comes from students. They tell the truth and are blunt about it. She calls them honesty brokers.
1: Students can tell you, you know, which substitute teacher always goes to sleep in class, uh, which teacher pushes them to work harder and think bigger than than they thought possible.
0: Ripley moderates today's discussion, which features two college students and a high schooler who are all activists. As a high school junior at Sidwell Friends, Jahari Shelton is working on founding a hub for youth activism nationwide. Grayson Alexander attends Loyola in Chicago. He came out as transgender in high school and lobbied to use the boys' bathroom. Later, he took it up a notch, lobbying the Illinois State Legislature to pass a bill that makes it easier for people to change the gender on their birth record. Camille Allen is a sophomore at Barnard College at Columbia. At her high school in Illinois, she facilitated conversations about racism and inequity. Now she serves on Barnard's Council for Diversity and Inclusion. Later in the show, we'll feature a bonus discussion about the powerful Me Too movement. But first, here's Amanda Ripley. Student Grayson Alexander is the first to answer her opening question. So these
1: are really important sources of information, students. And they very rarely get asked um, to to weigh in in a meaningful way, you know. So thank you all for being here. One of the reasons, so throughout history, right, it's often young people who drive social change. And it's sort of an interesting paradox because there is a power imbalance, right? Like, they're in many ways um, not set up to succeed when they're trying to drive social change. Like, it's a hard thing to do for anyone, but especially for, you know, teenagers. Um, So I guess one of the things that is most fresh on our minds right now is the advocacy that we have seen... um, on behalf of the survivors of the mass shooting in the high school in Parkland, Florida. So we've seen, you know, a a huge reaction to the way that they've reframed this. They've sort of trained the media now for, unfortunately, we know there will be future school shootings and they've trained the media. So it'll be interesting to see now, the media will ask different questions of those survivors. And I guess, but what I'm curious about is what were your reactions as, and maybe we can just start here and go down the line. What were your reactions as you watched that story kind of balloon and the reaction to it?
2: Well, um, personally, I was really impressed that they were taking any action at all because it's really easy to just sit back and not do anything. And so um, I felt like it was really great to see the students step up for it, but I did not have an optimistic outlook Mm. on what they were gonna be able to achieve because from my experience in advocacy, um, being a young person and stepping into a state legislature, you get written off quite a lot. And it's very hard to do, to achieve anything that you want to achieve. And so I'm doubly impressed with the amount of um, change that they've been able to achieve just by, um, even by just keeping the media's attention on it. So,
1: so you're wary or worried? I guess it sounds like you're worried about them a little, uh, like about what will happen.
2: Yeah, over it's, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to keep those things going, especially as a student when you have so many other responsibilities that society expects of you, yeah. and you have so little power. Hmm. So,
1: Camille.
3: Yeah, I think I was also like to agree. Grace incredibly impressed. Um, I like. Gun violence is not new. Obviously, like we know this, and these school shootings are not like new. The numbers just keep increasing. Um, I, I think like the way that we talked about Parkland was new, um, and I was wary of conversations that upheld it as like the only time that students or young people have tried to organize against like gun violence. I think that especially like black young black people, we know that this is like an issue in our community, um, and we've been passionate about it for a long time. So it's about kind of like
1: marrying all these existing efforts um, and really keeping the conversation going. Yeah, I mean, you yourself have bro- spoken at rallies against gun violence years ago right? uh, in, in Illinois. Um, and it's probably worth noting that uh, roughly 2,600 high school students, high school age students die in gun violence every year in the U.S., about 2% of them in, in school shootings. Um, so this is a huge issue for young people, especially young men, especially young men of color who are involved in gun homicides at 20 times the rate of white young men. So this is not, a, sadly, not a new issue. Um, Jahari, what were your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I'll bounce off of what Camille said. So obviously this is not a new issue in general and especially not in the black community, but it is a new way of reacting to it in the media. Um, and we certainly know that media bias is real, especially against you know, people of color and those with a darker hue. Um, and it's interesting to see um, the FBI kind of claim black identity extremists as, you know, terrorists. Um, meanwhile, they gave prime time TV, you know, to students from Florida to, you know, talk to the NRA and to talk to congressmen and women and lawmakers and the president of the United States about, you know, why things should change. Uh, and so I- you
1: saw like a difference in how, in how the, the public and the media reacted to Black Lives Matters activists, for example, compared to these activists. Right. And
4: yeah. I definitely think the media has a big portrayal of that, um, you know, the heroic story of, you know, Parkland survivors and the negative, you know, violent face-off kind of thing between Black people and, you know, police officers.
1: Yeah. So how did you feel about that? Was you watched that Delta, that difference, you know?
4: I mean, we've, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement, at least publicly, has been going on for a, a greater part of my adolescence. You know, because I'm the baby on the panel, um, and so, and so uh, over time, you know, you've seen the images of, you know, people like D. Ray McKesson and people in Ferguson, people in Baltimore, and they're consistently painted um, in this in this manner that is that they're not. You know, they're not public figures that we should hold as important. They're not. You know, they're not. Um, you know, influential enough for you to look up to. They're not powerful enough to, for you to look up to, um, but these people are. Huh. So, to pay attention huh. to them, right? Huh. Um, but well, that's all I have to say about that. We can go yeah, on. Yeah, nice. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: I think that the challenge. We were talking about this in the green room, and it's a particular challenge in the media, but for all of us, I think, is to hold multiple ideas in your head at the same time, right? Like, what these students are doing is real and is important and is brave. And everything Jahari just said is true, too, right? Like, there is there is an important difference in how um, how they've been portrayed and how threatening they are seen to be, right? Um, what, you know, there are, it's interesting because there are definitely special disadvantages or challenges that that come with being the youngest advocate on the panel or whatever, <laughs> right? Like, what are some of the things that make it, and, and you, I think, Grayson, you started to touch on this. Like, What are some of the things that make it hard, particularly hard, harder than for adults to be advocates?
2: Um, not being taken seriously mm-hmm. is the main thing. Um, and basically all my advocacy, both within my school district and within the state legislature, I basically needed an escort and someone to kind of testify to what I was doing. Like your even,
1: credibility. Like, yeah. yeah.
2: Even though um, my credentials really lend myself to be able to speak on these topics, <laughs> to be able to speak about yeah. what it's like to be a transgender person in America, Yeah, I still needed to have um, a really well-respected advocacy group behind my back hmm. to be e- able to even step into my state representative's office and get a one-on-one meeting. <laughs> and, um, that was actually more difficult on the school district level where I couldn't tap on that advocacy group. Mm-hmm. Instead, I had to try um, going to my principal who at the time, um, there was a principal and superintendent shift during my, um, during my high school career which really contributed to me being able to gain access to the boys' bathroom.
1: So the shift was, in your, was more open?
2: Yeah, Yeah. so the shift was in my favor and just even being going to the administration of the school and trying to say, these are the issues that I am facing. People are bullying me. Um, I am holding my bladder for eight hours a day. My grades are suffering. Why won't you listen to me? Mm -hmm. And just being kind of written off and told, oh, we can talk about this some other time. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So in an interesting way, it was harder at the school level than at the state level, right? Because you couldn't... It was like it's like what goes on in a school stays in a school, right? Like it's like this own little, tiny village, um, for good and for ill. Yeah. Yeah. And I can sense there's still. Yeah, kind of. uh,
2: I still have a lot of friends in my high school that are transgender, and Mm -hmm. um, luckily the school district now has a policy um, in place. Um, The superintendent has um, a mechanism for transgender students to. Um, set up a, a support system within the school, hmm. but there are still transgender students that don't have access to that and still aren't being heard either because they don't have a supportive family or because they don't know about the policy. Hmm. So it's still very- It's so
1: often the case, yeah. right? You just don't know what you don't know and how can you? Um, Camille, I mean, I think adults think that young people don't notice when they're being talked down to, but I'm pretty sure they do, right? Like, yeah, I know do. How can we you can... tell? Like, how can you tell when someone's talking down to? Like, has that ever happened? Oh yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> I think there's, like, for me, I like to like, draw the distinction between uh, listening to someone and hearing someone. Yeah. So I think like when you're listening to them, like you're nodding, whatever, you're kind of taking in their information. Like when you're hearing someone, you're validating their story and you're making time for their truth. That those are very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially like as I work a lot like in institutional spaces, um, and advocate for student voice and for student experience, working with adults um, who kind of just nod and smile, mm-hmm. and that's as far as they'll go. I'm very to worried to... about
1: nodding right now. <laughs> 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 no, I'm hearing you though, and so you're saying. <laughs> no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to summarize what you just said to prove to you all because you don't believe me. Um, so you're saying there's a difference between listening and hearing and that when people validate what you say and make a space for it, then right. you feel heard. And that's different. Right. Exactly. Am I getting that right? Yes. OK. Christine. Um, and even at Bernard, do you feel that as well? I mean, you're now you're an adult, like, right. Mm-hmm. There should be theoretically less of that nonsense or. No, I think there's no, it's still there. OK, if not more. Oh, really? Way. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, Uh,
3: well, I think Barnard's really interesting space because we, like, I love Barnard, like we are a women's college, and so um, it really chose us because I am so dedicated to social justice and to to this work. Um, But as a consequence of my identities, like being a black woman, I do articulate a more radical perspective, Uh um, which often comes into conflict with like mainstream white feminist break the glass um, ceiling kind of ideologies. So there's tension
1: there sometimes. So have you noticed this, so you're on this council, right, mm-hmm. for diversity and inclusion. That's the kind of thing that people do with good intentions, good mm-hmm. rhetoric, sounds good. Do you feel like you can actually have impact?
3: Yes, I think so. And I think um, part members of the council have been really intentional about including my voice. And it takes people on the inside to say, like, we need you here. We want you here. Yeah. And to say it to me and really
1: invite me in. Oh. And that that's made a difference. Huh. That's interesting. Um, You know, and and I want to get to, well, let's just do it now. I'm in charge, I'll just do it. Um, (laughs) uh, So what are some things that people, you guys have hit on some of them, but what are things that people in this room, people watching can do? Because I think there is a lot of, like people want to help young people change the world. Because they're feeling like, oh man, somebody needs to do something and they want to help often, right? So what, what, what are a couple specific things, like could be something small, but what you've mentioned is, you know, vouching for you, like letting people know you're legit, right? Um, and, and you've mentioned internally vouching for you and asking, like specifically drawing you out. Are there other things that, you know, adults in this room could go and do today?
2: Um, my biggest one as I'm moving into the adult world is pay me. Pay you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I <don't remember> that. <laughs> that, that seems really intuitive to me. <laughs> 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 um, as a student at a private university, I work quite a bit. I have two jobs actually that I do while I go to school. Mm-hmm. And um, in order, f- I love my, doing my advocacy work. It's what I'm really passionate about. But in order to maintain my ability to be going to this school, I need to be paid for it. Yeah. And if you want me to stay over the summer and intern in Chicago, I need to be paid for that. Yeah. And I'm lucky enough to have been able to find those avenues. But I know a ton of people who want to make, who want to work on the local level who want to work within institutions to try to make change, and they can't do it because they can't afford the economic price mm. of taking an unpaid internship. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to promote youth advocates, pay them so that they can afford to do it.
1: Yeah, like I feel like sometimes people think they're doing you a giant favor just by giving you an opportunity to, to be at the table. But in fact, like there's an opportunity cost to that, just like there is for all of us, and maybe more so because you're going into debt and so forth. So, so what you're saying, you, you know, let's not let's not pretend that uh, my time is not, you know, worth something. You know, I mean, it is, and that makes a lot of sense. Anything you want to add to that, Camille? No, I would just say, especially because like the
3: nature of what we're interested in is like social justice advocacy work. Those tend to be organizations that don't mm. have the funds. So, like there are obviously again like structural and systemic issues. So. It matters to also connect students to those funding resources, like alternative sources. Like I you see. said, like not just like saying, like, like they're there, figure it out, but like, let me help you. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So that you
1: can get a grant or a fellowship
4: mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'll touch on two things. So when you talked about having a seat at the table, often we're not at the table. We're in those chairs in the back <laughs> where you see those press <laughs> yeah. Um And so I think that that's one thing, is actually having us a, a seat at the table physically or metaphorically. Um, and not in the back, you know, waiting for our cue to come yeah. forth. Um, and then second, I think to Grayson's point earlier about being worried about Parkland students is that they make mistakes, right? They're still mm-hmm. young. They're still kids. You can, And oftentimes when people get into certain positions um, of power and influence is other people are threatened by them naturally older people, right? Is that this person knows more, they think they know more than Mm. I do? Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Um, And so they'll, you know, search through your whole Twitter, your Facebook, your Instagram, and they'll find any and everything they can to discredit anything that you say from now on. Um, I mean, those are just two things that I So
1: you're saying give people benefit of the doubt, give them a chance, right? Yeah, Yeah. especially now that everything, I mean, God forbid if everything I ever thought or said or wrote in a note was like public record. So that's a good point. So give people the benefit of the doubt.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. You're listening to a panel discussion from the Summit on Inequality and Opportunity. This conversation is called What's Possible When Young People Speak Up? It features three student activists and moderator Amanda Ripley. Ripley writes for The Atlantic. In another episode called, Inequality and Opportunity, poet Elizabeth Acevedo talks about her work in a juvenile detention center in Washington, DC. She says most of the girls she taught had been abandoned by parents, and many were victims of sexual assault.
5: And one day it really hit me, I was so frustrated. I'd asked this student to just write this one
1: thing, and she was acting out, and she goes, I don't want to write poems, right? I'm like, I'm here trying to do something for you, and you don't want to write poems. And I had to take such a step back in terms of what I believed my role was in that room.
0: Acevedo spoke at last year's Opportunity Summit. You can listen to the rest of her story and hear her read personal poetry by searching Inequality and Opportunity in the Aspen Ideas to Go lineup in your favorite podcast player. And there's a link in our show notes. Now back to today's conversation. Here's Amanda Ripley.
1: When can you tell, like, if you're being used, like, as a token student? Like, when, what are the signs? Could you do like a list of like top ten ways you know you're being used as a token student? <laughs> it doesn't have to be ten, but just yes. one.
4: I mean, I think one is <laughs> definitely numbers, right? Um, so if, if there are people who make, you know, the threshold that yes, or the precedent that yes, we're going to have students on X and X activity, right? So we're going to have them on this advisory committee to the council member. Um, But it's going further than that if there are actually five you know young people that are Mm. um, qualified able um, and ready bring all five of them don't just bring two of us Mm, right um so i think i think that's just one Hmm. yeah
2: my personal rule is whether they're asking me or telling me (laughs) so if they're asking me to come and speak on an event and they're giving me the option to write what i want to say that's me actually knowing that they want to hear what I have to say, yeah. rather than them saying, we want you to come and speak at a fundraising event, and we're going to give you, we'll write it for you, you don't need to worry at all. <laughs> don't like, worry, you're pretty little hell. <laughs> we'll, like, they're telling you what to say, and they don't actually care about what you think and what you feel in your experiences.
1: So it's like autonomy. Like, are you being given yeah. like a true voice or just like rhetoric? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think I would just agree, like people, adults, who actually take the time to care and to listen.
1: Okay. We talked about some of the disadvantages and special challenges that come with being a student advocate. Are there special strengths? Like, Are there things that help us understand why it is that so much social change has come from young, organized people? What are their special skills and strengths that, that young people bring to organizing?
2: I think there's a certain boldness of young people, especially because older generations are the ones that tend to create the systems that they live in. They, um, older people, tend not to see the flaws that are in that system because they really want to be proud of what they're handing off to the younger generation. So when the younger generation comes up and says, "Hey, I have a few problems with this," they tend to be shut down pretty quickly. But I think that. That's a strength. We can see the flaws in the system that's happening right now and we can see how it's hurting not only us but others Mm -hmm. and we want to change that Mm -hmm. and so I think that we're pretty good um, BS checkers pretty quickly Mm -hmm. so I think I think that's our main strength. Yeah
4: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I would speak to that same candor so the, the I think that our generation specifically um, and being, I guess the boldness comes from Twitter fights. Um, but, um, but being able to use, you know, those, those platforms and um, communicating exactly what's on your mind has introduced this new kind of like aspect to activism where you don't feel like you have to speak properly to be able to be heard, or uh, well, at least not in all spaces. Um, yeah, I mean.
1: So sort of technology has sort of democratized more people's voices, like right. you can all.
4: I mean, we've seen activists spring up from social media, right? you yeah. have big social media presence. Um, D-Ray has a million followers. I'm going to keep referencing D-Ray <laughs> because he's one of the only people I follow on Twitter. Yeah. Because that's a special place if I follow you. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> Camille, yeah,
3: just to speak to like the, the, the technology and connectedness. um I think it, like young people, we just like we see more on, on those social platforms and it makes us more connected and also allows us to feel what we're going through. Um, like. I think a big journey for me, like my social movement organizing, has been recognizing that like it's not just about my issues. So, like I love to talk about race, I love to talk about feminism, all that stuff, um, but it's also about every issue that that matters to you and that affects you because we're intimately connected. You know, so mm-hmm. I have to fight all fights. So if I'm not fighting your fight, then I'm not fighting my fight. So you feel
1: like a camaraderie yeah, across? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You guys tell me if I'm wrong, but I've noticed just anecdotally that. Um, when when especially lots of people, but when, especially young people, when they get behind, like if they sense injustice and they get part of a cause they feel like could actually have impact, they are just like relentless. Like there's just a determination Hold
3: on
4: to your, and your edges. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like there's a there's a perseverance, you know that I think I don't always see among. I don't know what do you guys think about that.
2: I think that's especially true. and when it comes to youth, advocacy, that's a vital component of it. Um, because youth don't get listened to the same way adults do, you have to constantly be there and ready for maybe a, rhetor- like a a fight of words, and you have to be ready to be present.
1: So you have to sort of overcompensate. Was that was that by, by just giving it like a lot of attention? Is that something you noticed when you were working at the state legislature to try to get this bill passed?
2: Yeah, I was actually... Um, I was in the lucky enough position to be a Senate page at the time. My high school had um, a work study program where the second half of the day, instead of going to school, I would just walk right over to the White House and put a jacket on and I'd go and work with senators. And so, um, and I was also lucky enough to be given time off in order to do my advocacy work. Hmm. So I knew a lot of these senators on a somewhat personal basis. I worked with them every day and because, and so on the days that I did take off to try to go and see them and speak with them and try to get them to support the bill, it was really the fact that I had been present in their lives mm-hmm. that they were able to really listen to me. And then also when it came up for a vote, I was working that day. And I was on the floor of uh, the Senate when it, when it got a vote. and act- And I'm pretty certain that me being on the floor got us the few votes that we needed to get it passed. Hmm. Because when it got called up for a roll call, um, you have three seconds to vote on it. And in the first two seconds, we had 29 votes, which is two less than the requirement hmm. for it to pass. And in that last second, we got 33 votes.
1: And you were standing right there.
2: I was standing right there. And its I'm convinced that <laughs> part, of, at least a part of that was because I was standing right there yeah. and I was They were looking at me, and I was looking at them. And I I was not going to let them forget that I, the person who had brewed them coffee so diligently for four months,
3: unpaid.
1: So that's, I mean, it's a story about how it matters to be there and have relationships and how they have to look you in the eye, right? And that's, on the other hand, that shows you how hard, I mean, the, the fact that you were able to do that is really unusual, right? Like to, to have that job that allowed you to miss half a day of school and be there.
2: The fact that I was born in the state capitol in a decade that would allow me to grow up By born in the, the state capitol, you mean
1: Springfield, Springfield not literally. Yeah. Not, okay. not okay. Washington, D.C. But if... Breaking news. (laughs) Um,
2: Okay. The fact that I was born in the state capital of Springfield, at the time that would allow me to grow up to be in an atmosphere that was somewhat accepting of transgender people, the fact that I went to the high school that was three blocks away from the state capital, Mm -hmm. that I got admitted to the program, and then I was connected with the advocacy group, that is unusually rare, rare. Yeah. If I was just... If I was born five years before I was, or if I was not able, or if I was not in the financial situation where I was able to consider that, or if I wasn't in the academic situation in order to take part of that program, none of that would have ever happened. Mm-hmm. And so I am. my story is incredibly rare among youth advocates. Most youth have things that they want to come, that they, they have complaints, right. they have things that they want to change. And they're just not able to because they're not given the opportunities to. Hmm. There, the separation between where most kids are and where people would c- even consider speaking to them about policy issues is a huge gap.
1: Mm-hmm. feels almost unimaginable, I think, um, for a lot of people. I, and, you know, I think it's worth noting, I want to ask you, Camille, about your experience on the School board in your district. Um, you were a student representative on the school board, so it's worth noting that um, over a dozen states in the U.S. have laws making it illegal to have students on the school board, right? So this goes deeper than just, you know, oh, you know, you're so cute. Like it's it's like an actual distrust um, that is very deep, and it, it's interesting because if you look at some of the laws that are used to arrest students for low-level offenses in high schools right now, and we did a story about this in the Atlantic. All, all those laws were passed in the '60s in response to student activism. So, like, you know, disturbing school was supposedly passed as a law to prevent outside activists from coming in and disrupting schools during uh, civil rights protests and also anti-Vietnam protests. And now those same laws are used to arrest thousands of kids in school um, all the time in, in certain states. So. In your case, you actually were on the school board, um, which is very unusual. Yeah. What, what made you want to do that? And was the experience what you hoped it would be? It's interesting, because uh, I'm hearing
3: you say that like, many schools
1: and states don't actually have,
3: like, that's forbidden, mm. uh, which is wild to me, um, because it was so transformative hmm. in my work. I actually, I hadn't even considered ever running. Uh, my principal approached me and was like, Camille, I think that you should do this. I think you'd be awesome. And I had to think about it because I didn't see myself as a leader and I didn't see myself in that position. Um, and I turned to my friends and was like, well, what do you think? Do you think I'd be good at this? And they were so supportive and the response was really overwhelming. And so that gave me the courage to run. Um, but until then, I had never thought, I had never conceived of leadership in that way because I think we think about leaders very often as charismatic, outgoing, you know, outspoken white men. And there's not a place for black women in the
1: same way. So it took that person mm-hmm. helping you imagine that. And what was it like? Did you feel like you were just a token student, or did you feel like there was some real listening, or a mix? I think I
3: think there really was some real listening. It was nice because I had like a set time at each meeting to speak, so I like prepared a report yeah, and I like, read it aloud. Um, so it you know I, it was a journey for me. I really gained the confidence over time to huh. take new positions from that.
1: Is that something you think all school boards should have? Like should all yeah. school boards have a student on? that? Yes. <laughs> um, so that's, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, students often don't even know, right? Mm-hmm. That that's something they can do. Dari, um, now you uh, were on the, a task force here in D.C. We've had some troubles. We've had some troubles recently. Uh, okay. For those of you who don't know, D.C. public schools chancellor recently resigned. Um, we've had just a really devastating report come out that hundreds and hundreds of students had um, missed more than half of the school year last year, but still earned their high school diplomas, which... There's just something so sad about that on so many levels. Um, as somebody you know who lives here and reports in these schools, it's just really heartbreaking. And but you you were on this task force to help figure out graduation requirements. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And did that feel like a meaningful? You yeah. had a meaningful voice.
4: Yeah. I mean, so the task force convened um, maybe July or August of, of this past year, um, and I believe it's still going on. And um, before I exited the task force, uh, we were still. It, it was very much a very uh, like future-focused mission rather than one of the emergency that they're operating within right now. Okay. Right? Um, is the news hadn't really come out uh, yet. The wasn't reports hadn't come. Out. To it wasn't in reaction okay. to that yet. Um, and so, I mean, on that task force, there are obviously, like I said, there are, there were two of us students on the... How,
1: out of how many? Out
4: of, whew, Lord have mercy. Um,
1: like roughly? Maybe maybe 20. Okay.
4: Um, including our two um, you know, state board of ed representatives who chaired the task force. Um, and I think it was a valuable experience, but there could have been more work um, done to bring more students in, right? Is that there was an uphill battle for me because obviously, like we said, I don't attend a public institution. Um, so that, you know, they don't really, our voices are not deemed valuable in the same way. And, you know, we have to grapple with that. I think Camille and I was talking about that earlier in the way that we have to um, talk about our own identities and how um, that changes the way that our work is perceived mm. by our peers mm. um, specifically. Um, so. Is
1: there anything that you, like, if you look at the that news about how all these students were given diplomas and but even worse that they just weren't coming to school for a whole bunch of reasons like do you have any thoughts i mean you grew up here Mm -hmm. yes you're at sidwell but you you have friends who are not what do you think is not being talked about
4: yeah i mean i think it's not this is not a new issue uh we've had several you know a multitude of progress especially over this past decade um so these problems aren't new and they're not the first to tackle. I think that the, you know, the generation has obviously changed the people who are in high school. And I think that, um, you know, some of it comes from not listening to kids, right? Obviously, they're missing missing that much school for some reason, mm. whatever it is. Um, and so I think getting to the bottom of that is probably the better course of action than kind of like the political talking reforms that have been going on right now.
1: So if we want to know how to make... You know, engage students and make it possible for them to actually come every day and make them want to come, we should ask them. Right. Okay. Um, so, we have a question from the audience. You attend liberal private institutions that are t- to some extent more welcoming of activism, the three of you. Mm-hmm. What advice do you give to students at public institutions of higher mm-hmm. learning?
2: Well, uh, I can't really speak to the higher education part of going to a public college because. Um, I've never had that experience, but I did go to a public high school, and um, for the most part of my career, the administration wasn't very kind to any kind of um, activism in the school. There are quite a few controversies that happened um, that resulted in student protests. One was... um, we had a music, we did Hairspray as a musical, and as part of the celebrations for it, they put up protest signs from the 1960s and protest signs from today, trying to connect it back. Like as and part of the set? As, uh-huh. not, not necessarily as part of the set. It was in the hallway as okay. like, part of the decorations for the whole school to enjoy, to get everybody pumped up. And the school administration decided that it was good to take down any protest signs that had to do with the gay rights movement or to do with Black Lives Matter, and so that lit. Which um, one stayed up? Um, both. Yeah, there? <laughs> I'm interested. I don't even know which one stayed up. There were some of them, but they were so like bland. Climate
1: and, change. Yeah, yeah. I, think, yeah.
2: I think I think they they were just like boring protest slogans. Uh,
1: just like that, go do yeah, fight things like that. Wow.
2: And so the so. Um, so like, students fought back against that pretty wow. hard. And some of them did get in trouble. But, um, and nothing was ever really done, but the administration kind of learned their lesson that they couldn't get away with that. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you just got to do it. You, and it's hard to do it and it's costly to do it sometimes.
1: Was there media attention or how did yeah, they learn their lesson? Okay.
2: There was media attention. Um,
1: Camille, do you have any thoughts in reaction to that question? Yeah, I think like, the advice that I would give is um, if you're, like, you're a
3: young activist or organizer or community leader, like, make sure that, like, that you're taking care of yourself and taking the time to rest. I think it can be exhausting to be on the forefront of this work and to be the person who's always called upon. So find community, find supports, find people who can, who can build you up when you need
1: it. Hmm. That's good advice. Jahari, you want to close us out with
3: one? Well, when the
4: hub is around, they can find more there we more go. easily. There you go. <laughs> when you start, to, what yeah. is the
1: timeline on that? Do you have some? Um, just stay tuned. Just okay. stay tuned. I, mean, I, you know. I don't want to, to
4: put the timeline time. because I don't want you to check me on Twitter if I don't do it by <laughs> <time>. <laughs>
1: Well, you're junior right now. You're busy. Yeah. Right? Um, and then you're going to graduate next year. Yes. Okay, so I'm gonna check in with you in like two years. All right, all right. Um,
4: I'll be
1: looking forward to it. So look, we've heard a lot of. <laughs> I really want to thank you all for being here. I think one of the things that I've heard you say, um, you said many important things, but one thing is like, you know, don't don't put us out, you know, on your panel or on your on your table or whatever on your stage, um, just to make yourself feel like you're checking a box, like. Probably if we're not making you uncomfortable at some point, then you're not doing it right, right? Like, that, is that fair? Um, so you have to actually allow yourself as an adult to give up a little bit of control, um, or you're probably not actually preparing young people for the real world um, and letting them help you. Thank you all for being here, and thank you.
0: Grayson Alexander is a student at Loyola University, Chicago. Camille Allen goes to Barnard College and serves on the school's Diversity and Inclusion Council. Jahari Shelton attends high school at Sidwell Friends in Washington, D.C. They spoke to Amanda Ripley, author of The Smartest Kids in the World, and How They Got That Way. Today's show is all about activism. Next up, another talk from this year's Summit on Inequality and Opportunity called Me Too, Time's Up. What's Next? Author and founder of Memory Well, Jane Newton Small, speaks with Fatima Goss Graves. Goss Graves is president of the National Women's Law Center and has spent her career fighting to advance opportunities for women and girls. Newton Small starts by asking Goss Graves if the atmosphere around gender equity feels different. Here's Goss Graves.
6: This moment that we're
0: in is absolutely
6: different. And, you know, It'll. All the historians are probably really eager to write about this moment in a couple of years because the visibility around gender and gender inequality is at a height that we haven't seen in a really long time, and that's translating into new activism, it's translating into new voices, and it's hopefully, going to really mean some lasting changes on a policy level, on an institutional level, and on a cultural level
5: that lasts. So um, if you're wondering why I'm here, I actually wrote a book called Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, that looks at what happens when women reach critical mass in institutions, whether it's uh, a body, the legislature like the Senate or a corporate board, a Navy ship or an appellate court, and somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, it's a tipping point, and women really begin to change the culture of that institution. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you know, the progress that we've been making, obviously, year by year, but do we feel that we're at a tipping point, do you think, right now in our in our society? And... and but is it a tipping point for everybody? And that's a big question for me that I've been thinking about lately. Is it is it a tipping point for some and not others?
6: Right, well, so culturally there's no question that we are in really an extraordinary moment. And I think you've seen that in the silence breakers who've come out in the millions under Me Too. I think you've seen it in the new way of organizing that's been happening, the way that women are engaged differently. I think you see it in what has happened with the launching and creation of the Times Up Legal Defense Fund. But we will have missed this moment entirely. If we do not ensure that the change reaches women across sectors, if we do not ensure that those whose experiences are too often invisible when we're thinking about things in the aggregate mm-hmm. are not left out, so, so what that means practically is that when we think about what the wage gap looks like overall, that we need to start by, by really thinking about how for Latinas the wage gap when they compare to white men overall, it's 54 cents on the dollar, or for black women it's 63 cents on the dollar, for native women it's 59 cents on the dollar. And, and when we're looking at the wage gap for Asian women, which is overall larger, you have to even go deeper right? And understand that, oh, well, actually, if you're looking at more recent immigrants, the wage gap is probably the largest of all. Wow. And so what this period, I think, really requires us to do, mm-hmm. especially as we're rapidly shifting culturally and having really rich conversations about what, what do we want our institutions to look like? What does it mean to work with dignity in spaces that are equitable and safe. We have to ensure that it includes all women.
5: Absolutely. I know that I've gotten a lot of letters as I've written about the Me Too movement in the last year. I remain a contributor to Time Magazine where I've spent the last decade. Uh, You know, a lot of people write to me and say, "Hey, I was, you know, like it's great that this is happening in Hollywood. Uh, It's nice that you know people, journalists um, at Fox News and other places, that you're experiencing this sort of big, very public moment of sort of Me Too." But we don't feel it in our own, you know, places. We don't feel it in our workplaces. We don't um, feel emboldened, or we don't feel um, like we have the support in order in order to be able to come out and express these things. And so how do we help those women really come out of the darkness, feel comfortable and support them in reporting these issues and and standing tall and saying, I'm not going to accept a casting couch culture or something else like that uh, akin to that anymore? So I think it's important to take a step
6: back and think about uh, before October... Um, there are very few people beyond Tarana Burke and the the folks who were organizing with her that understood the power of Me Too. And when I say the power of it, I mean the idea that there is real power in the collective sharing of experiences and real power in collective healing. Uh, So, So many people weren't using that as a framework. We had conversations that were beginning in homes and communities and in digital spaces in the millions, Mm -hmm. right? Those are showing up in other spaces now, right? So what we're hearing from employers is that they're feeling this pressure right? They're hearing from people in ways they hadn't heard in a long time. That the long time silencing of experiences around harassment and violence. We're not in that period in this moment, right? The the silencing and shadowing and shaming, that's not the moment we're in. So what ends up happening when people come forward and when we examine why they haven't come forward historically, I think it tells us a lot. What we know is that Um, rates as high as one in three, and in some sectors, if in higher, women say they've experienced harassment and violence at work. Mm
7: -hmm.
6: Most say they would never report it. Most say they wouldn't tell anybody about it. So how you shift culturally to a space where people are actually willing to come forward and and share their experiences and shift both culturally and policy-wise to a space where institutions and we're talking about employers right now but institutions are handling them correctly that's going to take some real work and I am hopeful like I haven't been in a really long time that we're actually going to get there and And to ensure that women across sectors are experiencing this and feeling this, I actually think, in many ways, Time's Up has modeled an approach for us that we all need to be watching closely, right? Because the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund applies to women. It was launched by women in Hollywood, but it applies to women across sectors. And since we launched on January 1st, we've heard from almost 1,700 people. So that's just... about a little over two months, 1700. And those are crossing sectors. That's about 60 different sectors that we've heard from people, and from people working in restaurants and in hotels and on farms, people working uh, in government at all levels, people as active duty, military, and construction. You name the sector, I bet we've heard from them.
5: So talk, talk to me a little bit about the Time's Up Fund. And by the way, anyone who wants to ask a question, if you want to send the questions in, email them to aspenopportunity at gmail.com. We're going to be taking questions shortly, so please email in your questions, but I do want you to drill down a little bit on tell me about the fund, tell me how much money there is, what do you do for people, and and how do people apply?
6: Right. So the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. Uh, What we are doing is working to connect individuals to attorneys and to PR services. People contact us who need help. They either call us or they contact us online, and they have been doing it in large numbers. Uh, And then they get attorney information and go from there. We have raised since January 1st over $21 million which is exciting and inspiring. It's coming from over 20,000 different people. It's coming from every single state and countries around the world. So this is something that people, uh, you know, this is not just a fund. This is really a movement of people wanting to see something that looks different.
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today, we're featuring two conversations from the Aspen Institute Summit on Inequality and Opportunity. It was held earlier this month in Washington, DC. This conversation about the Me Too movement features Fatima Goss Graves and Jay Newton Small. Here's the rest of their discussion, Jay Newton Small.
5: So I think there's been a big debate in recent years, like our recent months, I should say, because this hasn't been a movement of years. It's only been a few months. <laughs> yeah, only a few months. But there's been a big debate, certainly in my circles, of well, clearly what Harvey Weinstein did. At least it seems to be pretty legal, right? Like, I mean, he's accused of of horrible things like rape and taking advantage of young women and threatening their careers. Um, and that's something that obviously people should support. But then there are other instances, and I don't know if you saw this episode of of Saturday Night Live with Aziz Ansari, right? Like it's like that like awkward thing that nobody wants to talk about. Was it illegal? Was it? It's obviously wasn't illegal. What was it? You know, like was it appropriate? Was it not appropriate? I mean, it's like so weird and awkward. Um, where do you encourage people to report? And where do you say, hey, maybe don't report this? <laughs>
6: well, I. I should begin by saying that I think the cultural conversation has to be both about the law and very much not about the law, mm-hmm. right? Because really this cultural conversation is is really about what sorts of lives do we want to live, what sorts of experiences do we want to have, what do we want our institutions to do and not to do. And if we only limit ourselves to the law, then we're in this really narrow compliance Thing Mm -hmm. and and as a lawyer, I even don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) I think what you really want is for institutions to talk about what are you know what is it that we want our workplaces to look like. What is it that we want our school communities to look like? I think it is a good thing. You know, I've I've read a million pieces about the Aziz Ansari date and. You know, I was kind of like, I know a lot of information now, uh, more than maybe I wanted to know. But, But what I was left with was a real worry that people would be afraid to have what actually are really important conversations, really important conversations culturally about things like consent and how it manifests itself in our society, where we are now and where we want to go. We should be having those conversations outside of the law. Those are just good conversations to have. And what was maybe the norm 20 years ago and what is even the norm today does not necessarily mean it has to be for this next generation. Mm-hmm. And and that is part of what is driving this, people saying, actually, maybe we want things to be different. Mm-hmm. That's a good conversation to have.
5: So in, in my research for my book, one of the things that I was surprised to learn was that... Um, Women really came into the workforce during World War II um, with Rosie the Riveters, and because the economy demanded it, right? Like there was this need for workers. But it wasn't until the 1970s, really, that all the laws banning married women from working without their husband's permission, or um, banning them from tending bar without their their father or husband's permissions, you know, unseemly jobs, protecting women from those things, um, were, were were really repealed. And 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 I think that it's so interesting the progress that we've made. And on, would you say that on paper now women, at least on paper, are equal in, in this country? And what's the difference between being equal on paper versus being equal in reality?
6: There is no uh, question that we've made tremendous progress. The one thing that I would say, if you you know, if we take ourselves back 40, 50 years ago and think about women's work and how they were situated with the workplace. There's real differences for women of color too, who always worked at rates that were much higher mm-hmm. than white women. And 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 a lot of that work was valued differently in our laws, mm-hmm. right? So that's one of the things that you see around the care workforce or among around workers who are in um jobs that were tipped the labor laws treat those occupations that are primarily women jobs very differently in terms of when and how the overtime laws apply whether you get the full minimum wage or have to make it up in tips and that's on purpose right there are lots of organizations who've done some deep work in sort of documenting what the debate was when those choices were made so i think you know, but even as you saw more women overall entering the workplace and more women of color working at high rates and more white women working, uh, it, it was um, in a space where our laws hadn't yet caught up right and so you see with the civil rights act of 64 which does ban sex discrimination in employment and adjustment to those laws in the 70s it's 1972 when we first have title 9 which says you can't discriminate based on sex and education mm-hmm. right wow. which opens up all sorts of fields mm-hmm. and the ability to
5: study uh
6: but all team
5: sports right women did not really play team sports before title 9
6: well and and what's What's fascinating about uh, Title IX sports debate, right, That there has always been this really interesting um, debate around women in sports. And it's been a space where a lot of stereotypes about their abilities have been able to live. Like, they can't do that. They'll hurt themselves. It's dangerous. All of those things that you saw play out in other spaces, right? They can't work in this lab. It's dangerous. It's not. You know, they don't have the capacity. So you have they one can't in, fight on
5: the front lines, you right?
6: <laughs> it's the same argument in different spaces. And so you have a lot of in the 70s and 80s and 90s a lot of people who were first, the first to do this, the first to do that, that were barrier breakers in important ways. That then open the window enough for more people to follow. But if you fast forward today, we still have fields that are dominated by women that pay less money and fields that are dominated by men that pay a lot more. Mm -hmm. We still have women in rooms where they are the only one in the room or a handful. That's why one of the things that I have been trying to say, along with many others, about this moment that we're focused on around harassment and violence, that it is really a symptom of a broader conversation around inequality, mm-hmm. and a key solution to that has to be diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Right? We have to say times up. Also, on the idea that we have male-only
5: spaces in leadership. Well, it's like um, it's like what. Uh, Oh my gosh, I'm having a moment. Oscar winner who won, she just won the Oscar for best actress. Thank you, Francis McDormand. Thank you. So Frances McDormand and the inclusion you, writer. writer. And so, you know, and, and Gina Gina Davis, who runs um, the sort of uh, National Center for Women in the Arts, like out of Hollywood, which studies studies women representation. Mm-hmm. Hollywood. It's an amazing group. If you ever get a chance to look at it, she talks about she's been pushing studios for years to say, okay, if you're going to have a bunch of extras, why not have them be equal male and female extras? Or if it has to be like a sponge at the bottom of the ocean that's like got a pair of pants on and nothing else, why does it have to be a man, right? Like, why can't it be a female sponge, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And and so, um, and that sort of inclusion rider of, like, let's try to be balanced in in how we're representing women on the screen, because far too often women are represented on the screen as, you know, Purely sexually or purely socially, not in working situations, not intellectually, um, just really as as objects and not as actual smart smart people. And so, um, yeah. And that's
6: the culture change that you say. So that that is both about literally providing equal opportunity for women working in the inter- entertainment industry, which which is a thing that has. That I'm, you know, that is just now getting more visibility around the people in front of the camera and behind the camera, where equal opportunity has not mm-hmm. been uh, the the situation. Um, but it is also about the culture change, right? These are the culture makers, and they've been highlighting the many ways in which it's harming them and as an industry. But it's really harming all of us. And one of the most um, powerful things that I think that we have discovered in this moment is that many of the inequalities that women are facing in Hollywood, whether it is the fact that actually a lot of their work is really contingent, right? Like mm-hmm. they are working um, often on contracts, and it varies from week to week, whether or you know project to project, whether or not they will get that. Mm-hmm. That totally compares to women in a range of low-wage fields where the work is also contingent. Oftentimes contractual, you know, in both spaces, we've heard people saying, Where's the HR to go to? Who do we actually complain to? Yeah.
5: Well, and the sad truth is that, you know, women may make up 47% of workers in the United States today, but they make up two thirds of minimum wage workers and three fourths of shift workers, right? So, in order for us to really gain ground, we need to begin to permeate into those leadership roles. Um, I think, you know, just talking about Want to look my last question is I wanted to look into the future and sort of say, for me in my book research, I was I left I felt hopeful in the future that, you know, like I said, women first came into the workforce because of economic necessity and we're at that cusp again, right? So as the baby boomer generation exits the workforce, we'll be short twenty-three million workers by the year twenty thirty. A lot of that will obviously be taken up by robots mm-hmm. <laughs> and like and self-driving cars and whatever else. But there is this big gap in, 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 um, in, in the workforce that women have the real potential to fill. We already make up half of college degrees, 60% of graduate degrees, more than 60% are women. So we have the skills, we're just not fully harnessing those skills in ways that could be productive for the workforce. So what do you see happening in the next few years? I think it's gonna be an exciting dynamic time.
6: Well, one of the things that excites me, especially around women and work, is that I am seeing a number of industry leaders recognizing that they have to solve what some are calling the gender problem. Right, So their gender problem is that they haven't created equitable and inclusive workplaces over time and that there isn't the right pathway and pipeline they're having trouble retaining people. That is going to turn out, I think, that close and deep dive they're going to have to do is going to work out well, not just for women, it's going to work out well for workers more broadly. It works out better to think about what do you really need to do to acknowledge that your workforce is both working and engaging in care, which more more women are doing. Works out well to think about wages in ways that are um, family sustaining and more equitable. And it works out well to think about how do we really have teams that are diverse, right? That's good for them. There are a long list of business reasons why they want to do it, um, whether it is retention or just having better outcomes and products. And so having the business case for the work that needs to happen um, align with the policies that will actually help women and their families is a good thing.
5: Alright, we've got some questions here. Uh, the first one is what is missing from the cultural conversations about sexual harassment? So, and I, I think we've said this a couple times, but I just want to remind
6: people that it's been only a couple of months since there's been this new visibility. And so I I keep telling people, I think we're just at the beginning. We haven't probed a lot of sectors. We haven't yet had meaningful conversations around men, and not Men and men as survivors themselves, mm-hmm. men as allies and effective bystanders and boosters. There's, a, you know, there, we just haven't had that conversation yet. We haven't deeply had conversations that feel like you're centering experiences of those who, who the numbers tell you really, really are vulnerable. There has been too little conversation, for example, about um, people and women in particular with disabilities. Mm. So, there is a whole range of conversations that are yet to be had, and the conversation I'm really excited to see inklings of our leadership conversations, mm. the people who are saying, you know what? We've been getting this wrong and wrong for a long time. Here is my plan to do things differently.
5: So that actually ties into the next question, which is how would you recommend having conversations with people close to you when you hear or see a wrongdoing? So my guess is we are going to actually start to
6: notice more wrongdoings than we have in the past. Because one of the things that has been interesting about harassment in particular is that it happens in plain sight. Right? I mean, sometimes it's literally in the shadows, but oftentimes it's fully in front of everyone else, and no one speaks up to challenge it in the moment, right? So, part of the practice work, and I think the training work that I'm hoping more employers will do, is around how you be, how do you really be an effective bystander, either in the moment, if that's right for you, or right after the moment? How do you make it so that it is not only per- a person who's the target of this experience who's having to then overcome? a range of factors to speak up, they shouldn't be alone. I mean, that's in part the Me Too
5: conversation, that people aren't alone, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we've seen today is the McDonald's turning their M's upside down to do W's in in honor of Women's International Women's Day. how how worth how how effective are these symbols right like is it is it is it laughable or is it like actually doing something (laughs) so
6: well here's the thing um i so on the one hand (laughs) on the on the one hand i I want the volume turned up on these issues generally. So if, if going from an M to a W sparks a conversation around gender inequality, that's a good thing. But I actually think what it then does for, for McDonald's is it pauses everyone to sort of say, OK, so this is the year of the woman. We're with you. What does that mean for the wages that you pay your workers? Because we know that women are two-thirds of minimum wage workers. And let's talk about fair schedules. This is the perfect time. And I have an agenda that you can help be a leader in, especially <laughs> on things like harassment and violence in the quick service sector. So I would, you know, in, in many ways, to the extent that these are symbols that I'm ready to lead meaningful change on women's issues, I'm
5: with you and ready to work with you and sign me up. Um, I have a last question for you, because we have about five minutes left. And my question is, so we, you know, the President has an agenda having to do with women, including his um his daughter, Ivanka Trump. Um, how much progress do you see them making? <laughs> like, in the um, year of the women. <laughs> so, I didn't know where you were going
6: when you said the President has an agenda on women because I agree <laughs> I. I, I have to say that I agree. Um, and what it has meant is that they've taken steps to undermine access to reproductive health care, including contraception care. They've rolled back a really reasonable equal pay reg. They rolled back and took steps to undermine Title IX guidance on sexual violence. They um, withdrew the Fair uh, work, the fair and Safe Workplace executive order. I, so, so there is an agenda that is, that is squarely around women's economic security and ability to thrive in different institutions. That is not a helpful one. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, and, and the National Women's Law Center and some of our partners have actually filed lawsuits over some of this, over the contraception rule and the equal pay rule and the Title IX sexual violence guidance. Uh, there could be another way right this is a moment you know if culturally you have this seismic conversation around harassment this would this is calling for leaders it is calling for our political leaders our business leaders our institutional leaders to lead a path for what's next um, and and so that's been missing
7: mm-hmm.
6: uh, at a lot of different levels and so so I I will just say that I have a list of things that um, this administration or any administration could do that would make a difference. They could actually start by undoing some of the really harmful things they've done over the last year. So...
5: And my final, final question, because I have one more. Um, I, my, my book grew out of a story I wrote about the women of the Senate coming together during the government shutdown to restart the negotiations to reopen the government in, in 2013, when none of the men would talk to each other. And that was the first year that that um, that none of that, the, the women reached 20% of the Senate, and they actually ranked or chaired on 11 of the 20 committees. And they had such a huge impact. They ended up producing more than 75% of the legislation that was passed into law that session. Um, and We're at the cusp of another potential year of the women, right? Like, how much of an impact could electing more women to office have? Do you think?
6: I mean, more women are running around the country than we have ever seen, Mm -hmm. right? They're running even against each other, so this is going (laughs) to be a really interesting year. And that's at all levels. That is for Congress, but that is at that's in state houses, that's in the local level, Uh, and I, I think that you're absolutely right. I think it'll shift who it is we see on um, what, what issues we see rise up to the top. Right? But it will also potentially shift how it is people work together. And I know that I you know, that the women in the Senate and the, and, and the House have continued to have um, really important ways of working together and that they've protected that. I'll tell you another story that was really, I think, um, a special moment, and that was around the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And it had passed the House along with the Paycheck Fairness Act, which is another story. And in the Senate, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen. There was this rich rich debate. And ultimately, what ended up happening was all of the women went down together, together, Mm -hmm. Republicans and Democrats, to support that bill. That's why it became long. Mm-hmm. And showing that they could come together on a core issue around women's economic security um, in that moment in 2013, it does give me hope that what happens when you continue to increase these numbers in terms of, again, not just the issues that are on the table, which I think that's an important point, but also how they work together. And then finally maybe if there're more women we wouldn't be having this conversation about whether Tammy Duckworth Senator Tammy Duckworth gets leave and can has to, you know, <laughs> pump milk in the bathroom. Like that that would be another <laughs> yes. thing.
5: Well, definitely me too and I think it's such a great conversation to have. Thank you so much for coming out today. Um, and thank you so much for having us here today.
0: Fatima Goss Graves has worked on issues around income security, health and reproductive rights, education access, and workplace fairness. She leads the National Women's Law Center. Jay Newton-Small writes for Time Magazine and Bloomberg News. She started MemoryWell after her father moved into an assisted living facility. It chronicles people's stories and makes them available to their medical caregivers. Both of today's conversations were part of the Summit on Inequality and Opportunity, held in Washington, D.C. in early March 2018. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow Aspen Ideas To Go year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Opportunity Summit programming team is Jamie Miller, Azalea Milan, and Alex Garzinski. Our theme music is by Jim Brunsberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.